1: Hello, and welcome to the New Books and Popular Music podcast. In this episode, I speak with Aisha Durham, the author of Home with Hip Hop Feminism. Our conversation examines how ordinary women engage with hip hop. We also discuss how hip hop creates sexual scripts for African American women. Along the way, we talk about a number of musicians, including Queen Latifah, Nicki Minaj, Beyonce, and Erica Badu. Well, uh, welcome to the podcast. Um, and uh, Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you decided to write Home with Hip Hop Feminism?
0: Hi, well, I'm Aisha Drum, and I'm an associate professor uh, in the Department of Communication at the University of South Florida. And much of my research intersects three areas: media studies or media and culture, women's studies or gender and women's studies, and Africana studies. So, in some ways, my work is always centered around the intersections of how we think and talk about um, Black women in popular culture. Well. I can say that I wanted to start off as an MC, but I don't think that I had the rhythm um to be able to do that quite well. But like most female MCs, uh I came to write um autoethnography um, and I came to write uh, kind of life fictions um, in some way through poetry. Poetry was my entree into writing about my own lived experience. And I think in some ways, hip hop um, and rap in general, it kind of takes up that lived reality or a a particular kind of perspective um, from uh, working class, working class youth. And so that was my way of uh, starting to write um, when I was young. And when I found out, wow, you could actually study hip-hop in school, um, my uh, graduate research um, was talking about... um, hip-hop in general, thinking about the aesthetics, taking um, cues from people like Trisha Rose um, and Joe Morgan. And by the time that I um, was doing my dissertation research, I wanted to talk about hip-hop and women in hip-hop, but not necessarily talking about uh, women as practitioners. I think a lot of the research was about women as whether they were uh, the visual imagery or even talking about the lyrics um, of women, but I want to talk about the ordinary, everyday ways in which we engage with hip hop, not just as a culture, but also as a kind of generational construct. So, um, some people may pick up my book and think that, you know, well, you know, we are all the discussions about Nicki Minaj? <laughs> but I am, I'm most interested in the ways in, in which everyday people who make up the culture, live the culture. And um, those that's what I think my contribution is, and that's what I, I hope to kind of um, uh, contribute to uh, hip-hop studies, but also thinking about uh, the different areas, whether it's uh, autoethnography or um, uh, cultural
1: criticism, even talking about performance. So what are some of the challenges in... Approaching music from the lens of everyday people, um, how do you how do you get at that? How do you build evidence um, for everyday musical practices?
0: Well, um, I think one of the things um, that I mean, I went into the project thinking that I was going to get some kind of, um, uh, I guess. Um, Some kind of essential way of thinking about hip-hop culture by going to working class women who make up the culture. And really, when I was trying to get them to think about hip-hop, 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 they really kept telling me things about ordinary, everyday life that had nothing to do with music. And for me, I thought, well, this... Project is not going well. I am supposed to be talking about the aesthetics, um, the lyricism, in particular songs, or even talking about icons. And they were talking about, I don't know, working or motherhood. And these were the topics that were central to them. And so I guess as a uh, music critic, but also an ethnographer, uh, one of the things that you have to do as a researcher is to be open to the possibilities, open to the possibilities of new ways um, and new routes of thinking about culture. And one of the ways, um, and I go back to kind of early um, ethnographic um, uh, scholarship, even ethnographic scholarship in hip hop was thinking about the ways in in which we use culture um, and the ways in which we make culture. And, and in that sense, I then had to go back and not to say, well, you know, this particular audience didn't know um, what I was talking about because they did not know hip-hop feminism. But then I had to think about, no, well, what are they saying hip-hop is? And from all accounts, from the people that I talk to, not only in this particular community, but uh, across the country as I speak, um, it's uh, the sentiment is the same. Hip-hop is everyday life. Hip-hop is life. So if you want to think about um, how to talk about hip-hop, then we have to talk about the everyday lives, um, and in this case, the everyday lives of uh, women of color.
1: Well, one of the things that I think is, is fascinating is that so much hip-hop scholarship is, is interested in notions of space. And... Mm-hmm. And frequently it's very public, it's outside, it's public space. And Mm -hmm. I I love how you turned this notion of space to home. Mm -hmm. And so I would love to hear more about your concept of how space works in Mm hip-hop and maybe within hip-hop feminism.
0: Hmm. So there, there are two things that are happening in terms of talking about space. So I'm not necessarily discounting um, space in terms of how the public um, cultivates a particular uh, uh, space, because and, and this goes back to Murray Foreman um, and the like, because it is uniquely southern, and even the way in which the conversations were taking place. It was there were stories before we got to the information. There was sit down and talk to us. So there are all these ways that made it um uniquely southern. So that's a particular way in which um a particular aesthetic in terms of uh Southern hip hop. But um, Kira Gant also talks about this in terms of there are these private spaces, these intimate spaces, these homosocial uh, kind of communities where you have black girls and black women who gather, who have completely different conversations than those that are usually on the street corner or in the club or even on the radio. And so in that space of the living room or even in the space of home where I'm ta- – I mean, I literally uh, did the focus groups inside um, of a public housing um, uh, community's, uh living room. Again, they were talking about child rearing. They were talking about, you know, their own bodies and being vulnerable. So these are, uh, these are not necessarily topics or themes that we hear, um, even if we were to listen to, uh, women, uh, on the radio in terms of, uh, rap music. So, I think that space is important not only in terms of um, thinking about the particular aesthetics of a southern um, kind of hip hop, but it's also important in the kinds of conversations that um, that might take place.
1: And so, and again, this is another thing that I thought was just so so fascinating was that hip hop fr- so frequently gets mapped sort of east coast, west coast, and then you've got mm-hmm. sort of third coast, uh, um, and then. I didn't even kind of even know where to put, um, sort of your subjects, you know, because, you know, it was like, was it more northern? Was it more southern? Was it east coast? Was it west coast? How, how do I, how do I feel? So, um, what was it like to do research in, in the place that you did and, and, and how did they position themselves within hip hop if they did?
0: Well, I don't know if they um, necessarily position themselves within hip hop. I mean, I know that at least two um, did. One, uh, one of the respondents um, that I talked to came from New York, and she was very vocal about telling um, us that she was from um, New York, um, you know, and coming coming to the South. But I know, even for me, growing up, Virginia is a unique um, space, especially in terms of the kind of tight border area, and one because it. Um, it's surrounded by um, historically black uh, colleges and universities. And so um, there was always a kind of um, very uh, diversity of music um, taking place, whether we listen to um, D.C. go-go or uh, Northeast um, uh, hip-hop or the emerging at that time, but it was not um, clearly identified, Southern um, hip-hop. Um, but this also came about through um, our own, you know, transportation system through the I ninety five corridor. So we will also get music um, um, through through that way. So there is a north. There is a northeast. Um, Growing up, there was a Northeast kind of background um, in terms of hip-hop, and it was only until we had people like Timbaland or Missy Elliott or Pharrell um, to make a particular kind of mark, and later we see with the clips um, in the latter— That we have a kind of a bona fide identity in terms of mid-Atlantic or even Virginia, um, for, for that matter. So I don't know, um, it wouldn't be, um, Virginia wouldn't be marked as, uh, particularly dirty South, like we would talk about in terms of, um, outcasts and the like, but it's still Southern, um, and I think because of the position, um, of, uh, Virginia, and kind of the mid-Atlantic, we take um, parts of both. And you can see that um, reflected in some of the um, hip-hop artists. But I think that the women themselves identify I mean, other than the the New Yorker, and if you're from New York, you're never going to say you're from anywhere else. Um, identify um, as Southern, but they don't say it with the pronouncement of "I'm um, Southern," but the particular ways of talking, of telling stories, um, of either or even gathering in a particular uh, space. Um, these are all very kind of marked Southern ways of belonging, of performing Black womanhood.
1: So. Let's try to dive in a little bit further into um, how the relationship or um, between sort of hip hop and gender and hip hop and social class. And what were some of the things that you were sort of learning as you were going about your study?
0: Well, one of the things that um, I, I mean, there's, you know, Two decades of scholarship that talks about um, hip hop in terms of uh, uh, gender relations, whether it's talking about sexism in hip hop, or thinking about homophobia in hip hop, or uh, misogyny. So. We have a robust um, uh, archive um, of research that talks about that. And much of my work also think, um, talks about sexual scripts and uh, kind of gender misrepresentation in, in hip-hop culture. One of the things that I, I wanted to actually um, trouble was class. Because class becomes a way in which we actually mark and unmark hip-hop um, in ways that speak to... Um, uh, uh, gender expression, but also racial authenticity. So for example, um, hip hop is, is marked as a working class cultural product, um, even if people who perform it and later are not part of that uh kind of socio economic class so there's a particular kind of class consciousness that comes that comes with it um but there's also a way in which it marks a particular kind of racial authenticity so working class um working class um blackness becomes a way to say that i am black um and it is one of the ways in which you see in contemporary culture where even suburban blacks or even non um non-black participants or consumers use this kind of working class uh black sensibility in order to write themselves within um black popular culture or black hip-hop culture and then in terms of gender it Also becomes a way um, of marking um, femininity, right? Because in some ways, working class Black womanhood is always already marked as out of control, um, being a loose woman, and even if we use terms today um, like being ratchet, um, so that's another—that's a contemporary kind of term. These terms are all associated, or even the use of the word ghetto, which is one that I trouble um, in the book. Um, these are terms that are connected to supposedly behavior, but they're behavior connected to a class identity. And so um, it becomes a way of policing not only race, but it also is a way of policing um, gender expression and sexuality. And so I try to work through that. And one of the ways I do that is through my own life, um, coming from public housing uh, and having to kind of combat some of the various stereotypes about, um, working class womanhood, whether it's the wall for a queen, the neglectful mother, all of those, um, uh, particular stereotypes. And then moving, uh, out of public housing to go away to college, which is supposed to afford me kind of educational, cultural capital, and then moving into the middle class where, You know, I'm around people who did not come from this particular economic background and they have ways of talking about black women, working class black women that are not markedly different from the ways in which I heard um, in terms of larger white populations or the dominant media. Um, And this was troubling to me. And they would tell me over and over again, I'm not talking about a specific person. When I say ghetto, I really mean like a behavior. (laughs) But it is connected to a person. Somebody (laughs) has to be doing it. So, um, so. So that idea of what class does. So class does the work of racializing and class does the work of gendering particular bodies when we don't want to necessarily um, um, use race.
1: Um, so I, I was really interested in how you were talking about social class there. And I found myself um, almost getting stuck In my sort of graduate school days, because, Mm -hmm. um, you know, working class to me, it seems like it's already marked so racially um, Mm -hmm. frequently. Um, And so I was uh, probably kind of spinning a little bit in my head. I was like, well, do do people, uh, how do people identify as working class in America? Mm -hmm. And does it necessarily signify? Um, a racial identity or not, or an ethnic identity. And I don't know if I even have a good question here, but I just, I found myself really thinking about just the difficulties of even just talking about social class Mm
0: -hmm. in America
1: um, as you were, as you were talking about that. So um, maybe at the risk of uh, asking too broad of a question, um, how how much uh, self-consciousness is there within hip hop about class lines and class divisions?
0: Well, first, I, I would say that in, in the United States, everybody is supposed to be middle class, <laughs> right. which is completely um, not true. But that's the that's the logic of um, capitalism that we have um, um, told ourselves. So, when I say working class, i i I can um, take that more broadly to be laboring classes. But um, I. No, it's, I think it's very conscious. I don't think that the ter- the actual language is used in terms of working class. Um, but the idea of, quote unquote, the idea of the hood itself is supposed to be a class marker. It's supposed to be a class marker, and it's supposed to be a racial marker um, um, in some cases as well. So I think in that way, hip-hop is very reflective. It's one of the ways of becoming. It's one of the ways of kind of having a particular entree um, um, in, into hip hop culture, and if you're not um, from a uh, kind of working class neighborhood, then your credentials as an MC itself could be called into question. And it's only when we have, um, you know, later um, uh, MCs or even the uh, popularization um, of hip hop. Uh, that goes beyond um, kind of streets or hoods that we have a, a different kind of acceptance of people who may not be from um, the, um, that uh, particular socioeconomic class. But one of the things that um, is is Different in this moment. I mean, we could talk about uh, pre-1970s where it didn't matter what class you were in because of uh, um, housing discrimination. You probably lived in the same um, neighborhood. But one of the things that we um, see in and this moment is that not just in general, I mean, not just with um, African-Americans in terms of uh, class connected to production, but class connected to consumption. So class, even if you're from, um, and I'm from a, a, a Norfolk uh, public housing community called Town, which was Diggs Park. It was, you know, renamed Town as if it was supposed to mean something different, uh, but it's through consumption and so even as I have this particular um, class background, I am still supposed to perform as if I'm middle class uh, or even rich for that matter. And that comes through, quote unquote, bling. Right. That comes through um, all of the branding. Um, and so that is a way to kind of show showcase that, you know, I might be from here, but look at me. I am like you. So I think there is a lot of discussion about um, class within hip-hop, even if, even if it's not marked in the same ways in which we um, talk about class today.
1: Um, well, good. well, I'm going to kind of shift back to the idea of sexual scripts, because that, that's a, mm-hmm. a major part of your book, and um, I, I really was very interested in your section about Queen Latifah, mm-hmm. and, um, and sort of the scripts that she adopted, adapted, uh, was forced to use. Um, so, wh- how do you see Queen Latifah and how her image changed over time in, in hip hop? Um, wh- wh- what do you have to say about her?
0: Well, one of the first things is that I think with the increased visibility of hip hop, um, the the visual representation and the participation of women in hip-hop, the roles that women play, shifted dramatically. Um, it's not as if women, you know... Pre MTV or BET were not um, um, sex seen as sexual objects or even terms that were um, used. We just used different terms, you know. Uh, thought today it was the skizer. Then so it's not as if those things did not exist. However, um, there was more diversity. There were more. There was well. There were more. First of all, there were just more visual representation, and there was more participation in hip hop in general. But there was a kind of diverse or a range of voices that one could have um, if one participated um, in hip hop, and that's not necessarily today. And I think for Queen Latifah, Queen Latifah represented um, the idea that you can you could be a MC, Um, also that you could, you know, be Afrocentric. Um, And I think that was a, for me, I know growing up, that was pivotal um, in terms of her own visual representation, um, that she looked like just someone that you saw in the neighborhood. That was important because it also let you know that you could be like her. Right. So there was a, the kind of unattainable beauty standards in which we see in all of popular culture, but also in terms of hip hop um, it troubles me to some extent um, um, today. So when Queen Latifah came out, those were whether it's in terms of her Afrocentricity as well as her lyricism, um, but her business savvy, having her own company um, and the like um, and being a part of a, a a larger kind of crew of other um MCs taken seriously um as a female MC that was that was um very moving but as we see her move into um Hollywood and acting um it's it's interesting to me that the two the two films at that time in which she received the most acclaim were the two films in which she basically took on these very kind of archaic sexual scripts, um, whether that's in terms of um, the you know the the mammy, and I said that in terms of the uh, matron uh, Morton in Chicago, or um, in terms of the uh, the hood rat or the hoochie, um, and we see that in bringing down the house. And um, I, I mean, we could look at her different roles and other people have talked about her and said it off which i actually think is a very um a very progressive um representation um but these two were got the most in terms of blockbuster kind of success and so we so it makes me ask like how do we have a voice within mainstream hollywood if these are the roles that you know that we occupy and so in some ways, hip hop was this uh, alternative space by which we could craft our own identities. But as soon as you become too popular, then that representation becomes somewhat limited, and we can see this with other um, with other uh, MCs, such as Nicki Minaj. I mean, when she first came out, even on mixtapes, no matter you know what the language um, the language that she uses or the personas that she takes on, I mean, nobody can deny. You know that she is just a great lyricist, um, but the, as of the, she became more popular, the visual representation um, became very constrained, and she works within those constraints. But it still recalls some of the same uh, sexual strips, um, scripts that uh, basically suggest that um, black women are sexually available and accessible.
1: And so and this may be moving a little bit away from what you're writing about in the book, um, but there's this idea of what it takes to, be cross, to do crossover and, and sort of crossing over from maybe a genre to being pop. And are there sort of maybe different rules in pop than there are in hip-hop or different scripts? Or how do you see that process when someone tries to cross over?
0: Well, I would say that hip-hop is pop. <laughs> so, um, I w- I would say that it's probably the um, the most recognized genre, you know, coming out of America. Period. So it is popular culture. Um, it's defined American popular culture for the past twenty years. So um, I would say if we're talking about popular hip hop, um, because I think there are, are a number um, of women who are not um, a part of that kind of popular um, uh, hip-hop, who who do, who remind me of the Queen Latifas. Um, Akua Nauru, for example, I absolutely love her, but Akua Naru is not uh, Nicki Minaj, and I don't think Akua Nauru wants to be uh, Nicki Minaj, but uh, there's a way in which... Again, but this is not just endemic of uh, female artists um, in hip-hop, but this is just a female artist in general, that there are particular ways in which um, women are uh, invited, and that's in quotes, invited to perform um, their sexuality. And for women of color, especially women of African descent, it is connected to this kind of visceral um, uh, way of thinking about um, the fleshiness of our bodies Bodies and connect it um, to the bud. And I have whole sections of um, talking about what that means um, in terms of being an asset um, for kind of cultural capital um, in general.
1: Well, so that, that, that kind of leads us right into sort of your section on Beyonce, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, and you really, it seems like you're focusing particularly in, in sort of when Beyonce is is kind of um playing around with the character Sasha Fierce. So, what was going on there and and how and how does Beyonce manage and use these scripts?
0: Yeah, so I think that um Beyonce, so I think Beyonce and Queen Latifah are doing similar things, but I think what happens with when we see Beyonce, I think she has a particular class privilege that enables her to kind of move back and forth. So she can be Sasha Fierce. She can, you know, talk about, you know, being ratchet on the one hand, and then she can come out in a ball gown um, on the other hand and be taken as hip-hop royalty with, um, with Jay-Z. So there is a way in which she can do that. And I don't think women who are already marked as kind of, and I'm saying class because I'm saying it in terms of hip hop working class cannot. I don't think Lil' Kim could have ever made that transition or even say that this is my persona, but this is who I really am. She can't do that. And, I also see that it's something that Nicki Minaj is even trying to do even as she creates more personas or saying no this is me and she's supposed to have a show um, a show coming uh, out about her her life saying this is my hip hop persona but this is me but I think because she's marked in a particular way in terms of class um, that she doesn't have that, um, that malleability or that mobility um, that Beyonce does but I I think um, Beyonce knows those, um, she knows very well those scripts, whether it's in terms of a particular way of thinking about class or even thinking about gender and sexuality. And she can mine um, black girl culture. She can mine um, hip-hop culture. But at the same time, she sees herself and people see her as a lady, and a lady has a very particular class connotation. Um, and as a lady, she can say, well, this is me. I'm just performing this identity. Everybody is. But we see somehow that is not Beyonce. But when we look at Nicki Minaj, we say, no, that is uh, um, Nicki Minaj.
1: So, you, you didn't again, you didn't address this in the book. But as we're talking, you're talking about sort of class positions and, and what, what what is available to Beyonce. I could not help jump to her hair and so how does mm-hmm. hair play into uh, these dynamics that you're talking about
0: well I I think I there's there's a really faint mention of it, but I know in uh, previous work I've actually um, analyzed a, a music video where she actually does play with hair um, she and in, in one uh, video. Um, she has cornrows, for example, and the cornrows are supposed to represent, again, her kind of street authenticity, right? Her street um, status. And even in the, um, in another video, she kind of pats her head, and that's kind of, uh, uh, connected to kind of when you need, when you want to get a perm or you want to get your hair done and your hair is itching, which you it can't. So there are these kind of signifiers that Beyonce uses that is so a part of um, black girl culture. And um, there are ways in which she stylizes herself that are particularly connected to class. But as I stated before, she has a malleability of moving, you know, in and out of that. And she can do that with costuming, whether it's in terms of her hair or whether that's in terms of her outfit or, um, itself. She um, is is definitely aware um, of the different kinds of class politics that are in play and those class politics that are, again, connected to uh, sexuality.
1: And so um I kind of want to use that as kind of a way to shift maybe to the, the last section of the book, which mm-hmm. as, as somebody who who studies pop music and, and uh, struggles with the study of pop music, I found that this last section be really powerful because, um, and I don't want to put words in your mouth. I want to kind of give you the space to kind of talk about what you experienced, but I thought it was very powerful that you acknowledge that when you went back into the, um, into Digstown, that you were a changed person and, and you weren't quite the person you were when you lived there and, and, and you were going back maybe as an outsider or partially an outsider. Um, can you maybe talk about that? How, as researchers, maybe, and people who study music, we maybe become maybe outsiders to the thing that we used to be insiders in. Does that make any sense?
0: Yes, absolutely. Um, that, I mean, I started writing about hip hop, Because I was a fan, and I am a fan of hip-hop, and I believed myself to have some insider knowledge that other people didn't have. Surely my professors didn't know anything about it. So (laughs) I had some kind of um, insider um, status, and I also felt that way in terms of the community that I was going home to. I mean, I say I'm going home. But in that moment of going home, not only did I realize how much of an outsider I was to the culture that I was writing about, but also to the community uh, for which I'm suggesting that I represent. And that was a humbling moment um, for me, but it was also a moment of, again, possibility. And I think that... um, that becomes a way of me even wrestling with my own class position. Because a part of the book, um, while it is broken up in terms of autoethnography and textual analysis or cultural criticism um, and uh, kind of focus groups or uh, ethnography, it really is an autoethnographic account of my encounter with my own memories, my encounter with the images that I see, and an encounter with the women with whom I meet. So um, when I when I go to that space, I have to say that I am not, and um, I'm not in Dixtown. I am from Dixtown, but I, I cannot represent um, um, this community in this in the same way because I don't live here. I don't have when they tell me their daily lives. My life is not. Um, it is not the same as theirs, and I have to acknowledge. So, even as I'm talking about black women, um, that there are class differences, and these class differences are meaningful. And so, when we talk about hip hop, that we have to be attuned to not only differences in terms of thinking about gender, but also sexuality and class. We have to make those markers. And throughout our our conversation, even we've been talking about hip hop in a kind of broad um, kind of sense. But there are multiple ways in which um, the women wanted to engage with hip hop, not only in talking about it in terms of culture. They wanted to talk about it in terms of um, live reality, but they also wanted to talk about it in a very gendered um, sense, a gendered sense, which we don't talk about as being a part of hip hop. We don't talk about um, the role in terms of motherhood. We don't talk about um, uh, sexual abuse. We don't talk about um, the kind of economic struggles uh, in terms of black mothers. I mean, their songs and their odes to mothers, but, um, but we don't have a kind of sophisticated way of thinking about what does it mean when we um, actually say that, you know, the mantra is, is I am hip hop. What does that mean when we say I am hip hop? Or what does it mean when we say hip hop is life?
1: Yeah. So I also like to hear you say a little bit about what do you think are some of the next steps that uh, need to happen in scholarship now that someone like yourself and other folks are starting to um, kind of wrestle with this insider-outsider status in hip-hop and and in pop music in general, Um, where should scholars be going? How how should this be affecting what we do?
0: Yeah, I think in some ways what has happened to um, scholarship, which I find very invigorating, is that we've gone back to some of the Earliest forms of um, scholarship and cultural studies in hip hop—we've gone back to using ethnography. I think, in some ways, um, some of the early, um, some of the early uh, work in terms of hip hop was really trying to map the aesthetics and see again. How, what does hip-hop, if we're talking about hip-hop culture, what does it look like? Who are the people who participate in it? And this helped to form the kind of uh, the groundwork or lay the groundwork for what we would call um, hip, hip-hop studies or music studies in terms of um, hip-hop. And then we moved toward um, much of the discussion is in terms of visual culture and text-based analysis. And I think some of the most nuanced uh, ways of thinking about hip-hop today is not necessarily by looking at the music, by looking at the people who produce and make a part of that kind of music community. So looking at hip-hop communities, um, I think, or communities who are part of what we would call the hip-hop generation or the post-hip-hop generation. And from that, you get, you know, work by people like... um, Uh, Ruth Nicole Brown or Bettina Love who are looking at, uh, you know, uh, black girls um, and girls of color um, in education and schools and thinking about how do they engage um, with it. You get work by Adriana Clay, who's looking at hip hop in terms of social justice and activism. So I think um, future steps would be, you know, look, actually going to the people and seeing what it looks like, because I think that can give us a clue of where we're going um, from here.
1: Well, thank you for for taking so much time and speaking with me today. Um, but before we go, um, are there any projects you're working on?
0: Yes. So, speaking of where are we going from here? um, One of the um, projects that I'm working on currently is talking about Afrofuturism, Um, and I I am looking at Afrofuturism through the lens of what um, uh, Erica Badu, and I'm looking at Erica Badu as a kind of um, not only in terms of her iconicity, but as a way of uh, seeing how she is firmly rooted in Southern culture, um, and but there's a way in which her work, whether it's the actual technologies that she employs or even the kind of discourses that she engages is engages in, is always this kind of forward thinking. Um, so she. Um, works between, you know, reimagining or imagining new ways of belonging while still being anchored in this very kind of, um, this historical past of kind of African on African, um, center culture. So I think that, um, her work. And people love Kendrick Lamar right now, but I think her work actually lays the groundwork. So people like, you know, even outcasts for that for that matter, or Kendrick Lamar could be possible. So I, um, I'm looking at her work in order to talk about the ways in which African-Americans have always had to um, live in this, you know, um, reimagining belonging in a space where we are actually seen in some ways as not ever really belonging. So imagining um, that planet rock. And so that's um, the piece that I'm working on, Afrofuturism and Aduism.
1: Well, this is great. Thank you so much. Thank you. You have been listening to the New Books and Pop Their Music podcast. Today, I've been talking with Aisha Durham, the author of Home with Hip Hop Feminism. This is your host, Richard Scherr. Thank you for listening.